The following is a message by the Rev. Ted Hamilton from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. It's my joy today to introduce my pastor who will be bringing the word to us. Uh, Ted Hamilton is the pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church, PCA congregation here in Escondido. Uh, received his MDiv from Westminster Seminary, California in the year 2000. He's speaking on a Thursday because he's also faculty this semester. Uh, pastor Hamilton is teaching the Preaching Narrative Text course while Dr. Julius Kim is uh, on study leave in Korea. So. Uh, a number of you are benefiting from his wisdom as a servant of the word in the coaching that he's giving you in that course, and we're looking forward to hearing the word from Ted this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Good morning. It's my pleasure to be here this morning. Well, coming as I do near the end of the uh, Thursday preaching schedule where the members of the faculty have been preaching Uh, through 1 Corinthians. Uh, All of the choice 1 Corinthians passages have been selected. Uh, All those theologically rich passages have been selected. So I was looking at the letter and decided that what I would do is is do what you're going to have to do, many of you who will become pastors and preachers, uh, especially as you preach sequentially through a letter. Uh, You will inevitably come to those chapters Uh, that you'd prefer probably not to preach, uh, that you wonder, uh, those chapters where you wonder where the relevance is to uh, your culture, to your people. Uh, So today we're going to look at, uh, for our meditation, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, that burning topic at New Life, eating food sacrifice to idols. All right. We're going to look at the whole chapter. It's a short one, 1 Corinthians 8. Uh, At New Life, uh, it's our tradition to stand for the reading of God's word out of respect for the the speaker, who is not the reader, uh, but the Lord, who speaks in his word. So could I ask you guys to stand one more time as I read 1 Corinthians 8. Now, about food sacrifice to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone knows this. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. 
For if anyone with a weak conscience sees you who have this knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't he be emboldened to eat what has been sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against your brothers in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause him to fall. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, uh, may the words of my mouth in the next few minutes and the meditations of our hearts together as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I recall times when I was a boy when I would uh, approach my mom and dad with a question. It was usually or often when I was having a disagreement with a friend or a problem with a fellow student or a teacher at my school, and uh, I would come to mom and dad with a question as to how to deal with these people. Uh, And sometimes, but not always, my mom and dad wouldn't answer my question. Instead, they would say something like, uh, you know, Ted, you've got another problem. That teacher isn't your problem. That friend isn't your problem. Uh, We don't like your attitude. And uh, you need to change your attitude before we can even begin to deal with your question. I didn't like hearing that. I didn't like the lecture that went along with it. Uh, But now with the wisdom of years, uh, looking back, I can see that my parents were right. And uh, I, I raise that because that's essentially what Paul is telling his Corinthian friends here. Uh, I don't like your attitude. They had asked two questions. Now, we don't really get the questions directly, but we can derive them from the discussion. This is the the, the whole idol, eating meat sacrificed to idols issue really goes, starts at eight, goes into nine and into ten. And we can discern that they really asked two questions. Can we eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols as believers in Jesus? And second, and more problematic, can we can we participate in the temple activities where that meat is sacrificed and served? Can we eat meat in the temple itself? Now, that question isn't as bizarre as it may sound on the surface. These pagan shrines were often uh, centers of social life, not unlike the Center for the Performing Arts here in Escondido, uh, which is not just a theater but also has banquet halls and and is a center for much of the social life in the city. Uh, Same in Corinth with these pagan shrines. Could Christians participate in in the life uh, of the shrine in that way and and eat in that context? Well, uh, what's interesting is that Paul doesn't answer the Corinthians' questions, at least not here. He doesn't answer the questions until chapter 10. At this point, Paul is like my mom and dad, Uh, opening up the discussion by saying, you know, eating meat sacrificed to idols, eating in pagan shrines is not really the issue. It's not the problem. The problem isn't your theology. The problem isn't your knowledge. You've got plenty of both. Your problem is you don't have enough love. Your knowledge, your theology isn't sufficiently tempered with love. And so in this attitude check part of the letter, to the Corinthians. Paul is reminding his Christian friends here of three important realities. Number one, who they're dealing with. 
Number two, who they are themselves. And number three, who those people are that are sitting next to them in the pews that they're disagreeing with, uh, that they're looking down on. So we're going to look very quickly at those three reminders, very quickly, as I look at the clock here. Uh, Reminder one, who are these Christians dealing with? Well, the answer is in verse 6, isn't it? Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came, for whom we live, and there's but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came, and through whom we live. An amazing statement uh, in, in Paul's way manages to pack a lot of profound truth into a simple statement. First thing he does, notice, like he's done before and he will do again, he goes right back to the most fundamental Christian doctrine, Christian truth, God as the creator. God who we worship is the one and only creator. He's the beginning of the story, right, from whom all things came. And he's the end of the story. He's our goal. He's what we are moving toward, for whom we live. Almost certainly one of the reasons that Paul goes back to this fundamental truth of God as creator is going to have profound implications for how he's ultimately going to answer the question. He will tell them that it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols because God made it. And since God made it, it's good. But he does something else here in this reminder. He links God the Father and God the Son, doesn't he? In one simple sentence, he's he's equating those two. He's linking them together. Uh, And by putting the Father and the Son together in the same breath, he's making a profound statement of the truth of who Jesus is. He's the one through whom God created, right? He was God's agent in creation through whom all things came. A stunning truth, really, about Jesus. And he's the one who now sustains creation. He's holding it together through whom we live. But Paul is not just doing an exercise in Christology here. He's reminding his Christian friends that they're dealing with Jesus as well as the Father because it is Jesus who will require them, at least in some instances, to not eat meat. God the Creator says, it's okay to eat meat. I've made it. It's good. God the Redeemer says, sometimes it's not going to be okay. Because of love, sometimes You are going to have to uh, surrender your rights, surrender your privileges, surrender your your, uh, preferences and desires and comforts because of love. Okay, that's the first reminder. Second reminder. Who who are they? Who are these, these people he's talking to, his friends? Well, they're not who they thought they were. Uh... See, they thought that they were the uh, uh, they were the ones that God was happy to have on His team. They were the theologically sophisticated ones. They were the ones that understood the nuances of the gospel. They were the ones who had a mature understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and Paul is reminding them: Well, 
Maybe that's true, but unfortunately, uh, he's reminding them that these people were very much like me. And I can get to thinking highly of myself by what I imagine my knowledge and my experience to be. My specialized knowledge gained from my specialized education, my specialized experience based on my life experience both inside and outside the church. It is very easy for me to think because of that knowledge and experience I am in some ways superior to other people. I wouldn't say it. But uh, I can certainly get irritated when those other people don't see things the right way, which is, of course, the way I see them. Um, This is what the people in Corinth were like. They were like me. Uh, This is a pungent reminder for those of us who have had the privilege or who are now enjoying the privilege of theological education. Uh, It is important. It is vitally important for you to have that knowledge. Uh, But what you do with it and how you handle it uh, is another matter. So Paul reminds them in verse 2, if you think you know something, if you think your knowledge kicks you up a notch uh, from other people who don't know as much as you, who aren't theologically as sophisticated as you, who aren't quite as mature in the faith as you are, uh, if you think you're superior to them in some way, there is a fundamental flaw with your knowledge. You are not knowing correctly. In fact, verse 3 goes even further and reminds them and reminds me and you that the fact that you're a Christian at all, the fact that there's any love of God in your heart at all is evidence not of your great knowledge or your theological sophistication. It's evidence of the fact that God first knew you. The Greek, verse 3, literally says, but if someone loves God, that same one has been known by God. Catch the the tense differences, our present loving of God is the result of God's prior knowing of us. You wouldn't know anything, including God, if God didn't first know you. And that's both encouraging and humbling. God is always the initiator. We love God because he first loved us. No one comes to Jesus unless God the Father draws him to Jesus. I am who I am because of God. You are who you are because of God. And we must not forget that because that is the beginning of true knowledge. Reminder three. Uh, Who are these people that are sitting next to them in the pews? Uh, Who are these people that uh, they're getting upset with, that they disagree with, that they, that these Corinthian brothers and sisters think that they are in some sense superior to, the weak ones? They don't get the gospel in all its fullness. They don't grasp the freedom they have in Jesus Christ. Uh, They don't see the complete sufficiency of what Jesus did for them. They're weak. They have sensitive consciences. They have a hard time shedding their pagan past. Who are they? Well, Paul tells them who they are in verse 11. For this weak brother, for whom Christ died. That's the key 
to understanding this whole discussion. It's the most important phrase in the chapter. For whom Christ died. The principle is clear. You need to be looking at every believer in the church, theologically sophisticated or not, theologically correct in all respects or not, as a person for whom Christ died. And of course, the implication of that is if God loved that person that profoundly, if he loved him that much to send his son to die for him and set his love on that person, then you had better be concerned about that person's welfare. In fact, more than concerned, because Paul goes on to say, uh, you know, you have the potential with your knowledge uh, to bring down, to destroy that brother or sister. And it may need, may need, you may need to surrender some rights that you have if that's what it's going to take to promote the well-being of that weaker brother or sister. And if you don't understand this, Paul says, you're not just sinning against that brother or sister. You're sinning against Jesus himself. Serious business. Really serious business. Um, and we know it's, we, we instinctively know that's right. Even, even in the non-religious sphere of life, people instinctively sense that something like this must be true. Remember a few years ago, the, the whole Terry Schiavo incident? That Terry Schiavo was that woman in a coma. Her, her uh, husband wanted to pull the plug on the life support. Her, her parents wanted her to stay on life support. And their, their dispute over her life became very public. And, and Michael Schiavo, her husband, was, uh, we, we began, the public began to perceive him as a sort of an unsavory uh, character, not a very likable character. And the reason is why is the way he publicly showed contempt for his wife's parents. Now, you know, a, a husband who loves his wife will not despise her parents. Now, that may be difficult. I mean, there are in-law jokes for a reason. Um, Your spouse's parents aren't always easy to love. But difficult or not, a husband will love his wife's parents because he loves his wife. He will love the people she loves for her sake. And that's what Paul is saying is true with Jesus and us. You must love the people that Jesus loves. And if you don't, it speaks volume about your love for Jesus. You love the people Jesus loves for Jesus' sake. Even if it's difficult, even if they're weak. Well, this, that's hard to do. Of course, it is hard to do. But the truth that demands it and the truth that will give you and me the power to do it is all encapsulated in that little phrase, for whom Christ died. Because the wonderful truth, of course, is that Christ didn't die just for that weaker brother or sister over there. He died for you. For you. That wonderful hymn of Christ in Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be held onto, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's what Jesus did for you. He voluntarily surrendered his rights, his privileges, his freedom that came with his status as the second person in the Trinity, and he did it for you, out of his love for you. How could we do any less for our brothers and sisters? You might be a hero, you know, you might be like the, the early missionaries to West Africa who brought their stuff in in coffins because the life expectancy of a West African missionary was two years. They went out in the box that they brought their clothes in. You might be like uh, William Borden, you know, the, the Yale graduate, heir to the Borden family fortune who... Uh, left all of that to become a missionary to Muslims in China, never made it to China, died in Egypt in language studies, found in his journal later uh, those words, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. I mean, those are wonderful, heroic examples of that sort of self-sacrificing love of others. Uh, You may be called to something like that, but you will certainly be called to something that may be even more difficult, and that's the hundreds of daily dyings that you are called to do for your brothers and sisters. It's hard because it isn't heroic, but we're called to do it every day, helping out a brother or sister when you're planning on doing something else, spending time with a brother or sister when you don't see any benefit from it, walking a brother or sister patiently and gently through a theological disagreement, being tough on truth but gentle with people, as Jesus was. Not serving that wine that you enjoy because uh, it, it, it bothers the conscience of a person, a weaker brother or sister who can't shed his or her past quite yet. Um, the examples are endless. Why would you do something like that? Why would you circumscribe your rights and privileges that you, so, you do so abundantly have in Jesus Christ because Christ died for you? And ultimately, because of that truth, you're going to miss out on nothing. All of those daily dyings, all of the sacrifices that you do out of love for Jesus, for other people, will be returned a hundredfold in resurrection life. We miss out on nothing. You miss out on nothing because Jesus, by his life and death and resurrection, bought you everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, this word, and I thank you for my brothers and sisters here now. Help us, Father, uh, to uh, love our weaker brothers and sisters as you have loved us. And now bless our fellowship time at the Dean's Tea. May it be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Copyright 2008, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way, and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.